This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. you. As you can see, California has brought out the gray in us. <laughs> Thanks for that flattering photo. It was about 10 years ago. <laughs> We're embracing the gray. It's amazing to be in your beautiful, is it a town? Is it a city? It's, it's whatever it is, it's beautiful. In your amazing Hogwarts church. I just think you should just buy the school. I mean, just buy the school. Where's your faith? Just amazing. We uh, were in St. Louis recently and went to visit a leader of a church and um, went to his home and he, uh, he, he offered me some coffee and, and truth be told, I'm a bit of a coffee snob and uh, Americans love their sort of flavored coffee. So he offered me some flavored coffee. I, I don't like to show that I'm a coffee snob, so if they do that, if they offer you the hazelnut blend coffee, you just ask for the tea. And so I asked for the tea, and I mean, it turned out that he was the most amazing tea aficionado, and he produced this London tea merchant, uh, oolong tea, and he said, you've got to try this tea, and he had a magic tea maker, and the tea from the London tea merchant was called the Naughty Vicar, <laughs> and uh, not being a very naughty vicar, I said yes, and uh, I'll, I'll have some. And it was actually delicious tea, absolutely delicious tea. I said, this is the best tea I've, I've ever drunk. And so I, I got back home to California a couple of days later, and um, thank you, Amazon, this magic tea maker with the naughty vicar tea arrived from this man. So I was fascinated by this, and it said London tea merchant, and I, I, I wanted to know where this oolong tea came from and how it was made, and so I went online. I wanted to see whether the, it, was, it was fair trade tea. Is fair trade tea even a thing? I, I, I'm not sure, but it kind of left a lot of gaps in terms of the how of this Naughty Vicar tea. But there was a who, and, and the who was this British couple that had come to America, and they existed. Their, 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 their who and their why was that they, they existed to teach Americans to how, how to have a good cup of tea. That was, that was who they were, and that was the reason they existed. And there was also the, the sense of like, well, this is the way you drink this properly. And I got enough directions to make an incredible cup of tea. So now I am a London tea merchant kind of fan in, in California, teaching my friends to drink good English have a cuppa, mate. And uh, anyway, that is a little bit about tea, but it connects to Genesis, because I'm going to teach out of Genesis, and, and Genesis is a how book. It gives us something of the how 
of the creation of the universe. And uh, we know that the universe was created by a word, the word of God's power. Uh, nothing was created that he did not create. But there's some gaps, there's some mystery in terms of the how. And uh, great Christian people throughout the ages have disagreed on the how of creation. We believe that uh, Genesis is not a myth, it's, it's an account, it's a historic account, but it's not a science textbook. And so there are some gaps in terms of the how, and there's some plenty of room to disagree on the how of creation. But what you find is that Genesis is very much a who and a why book. Much like the website for the Naughty Vicar T, you found out who the people were and why it existed. And I want to talk to you out of Genesis 2 and 3 about our why. Our why. Why do we exist? What's our purpose? What's our, our reason for being here? And it's so vital that we understand our why. We so easily forget our why. Viktor Frankl, that um, Jewish Holocaust survivor, said, if we understand our why, we can live through anyhow. If you understand your why, you can live through anyhow. And the fact is that all of us were born with this mysterious confusion about our why. Why am I here? Why do I exist? Why was I created? Or was I created? And there's a German theologian called uh, Helmut Thielek who says, every human is born like an actor into a drama. And until we read Genesis, he says, we live in a state of confusion and perplexity, not knowing who the playwright is, not knowing the beginning or the end of the play, not knowing who the heroes or the villains are, not knowing whether we have any meaningful part to play, any meaningful lines to say, until we read Genesis, he says. And when we read Genesis, we discover the who of the drama. We discover the playwright. We discover that we came from the playwright and that we are going to the playwright. We discover that there are heroes and villains. And we discover that we have a meaningful part to play and meaningful lines to say in the play. We discover that this playwright loves us so much that he writes himself into the drama. And that's the beauty of Genesis. What is our why? What is our why? The big idea of this passage is that our why is that we were created because God wants to dwell with us. Now, there's more than that. We are image bearers. We're called to cultivate God's image. We're called to have dominion. There's much in Genesis, but the chief why is that we were created to dwell with God. And church leaders throughout the ages have landed on the central why. The Scottish Westminster Confessions say this, that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And is that just a good idea? Is that just a fanciful idea? Well, actually, we find it hidden in plain sight in Genesis that our chief why is 
to dwell with God. So let's go there, Genesis 2, 1 to 17, and then 3, 1 to 4. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm going to lean in my first point quite heavily on a theologian called G.K. Beale who brings out the why of God desiring to dwell with his people. And he says that, that hidden in plain sight in the Genesis 2 and 3 creation is that Eden and the Garden of Eden in the middle of Eden was actually the Bible's first temple. And it begins a series of temples from the Garden to the Tabernacle to Solomon's Temple to the church as dwelling place of God, that God is wanting to show, He's leaving clues in Scripture of how much He wants to dwell with His people by making Eden the first temple. Well, that sounds great, you might say, Alan, how? Convince me, convince me. Well, Genesis 2 begins with the Sabbath, with God coming to rest, and Beale says that in every temple, the deity comes to rest in that, that temple. So God finishes his work on the seventh day and he comes to rest. He says that's the first clue, but there's some bigger clues, and we'll get them up now. That both the garden and the temple 
with the place of God's special presence, His, His sacred presence. Now we must remember that, that Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And when read through Jewish eyes, Jewish people would not have made a strong distinction between the different books. They would have drawn parallels. And so, so Exodus in particular details the tabernacle, which was the second temple. And Beale says that this word, the Lord God walking back and forth in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Who knew? God didn't like 45 degree temperatures either. He waited to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That word, walking back and forth, Mithalek, is the exact same words that God gives Moses when he says how he wants to dwell with God's people in the tabernacle. So in Leviticus 26, verse 11, God says, I will dwell with you in the tabernacle. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. In other words, God is saying, I'm not going to be a remote uncle who visits you at Christmas. I will come and dwell with you every day. I want to walk back and forth with you. Jewish people would have drawn that parallel between the tabernacle and God walking back and forth, dwelling with Adam and Eve. Second reason why the garden was the first temple was that Adam and Eve were given priestly roles in the garden. Verse 15, it says that Adam first and then Eve was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. So Eden was this region, and Eden means delightful, but in the middle of this delightful Edenic region was the garden. Adam was created in Eden, but then placed in the garden to work and to keep it. And that word work is the word abad. Can you say abad? Abad. And it means not just to till the ground, it means to worship. It's actually where we get our understanding that work is worship to the Lord. And so there was ministering to God, to work and to keep it. And that word keep is to God. Who would have thunk it? But actually in the building of the tabernacle, those exact two words are used for the priestly duties in the tabernacle. They were there to work and to keep it, to minister to God, to, to worship and to guard the tabernacle. That's in Numbers chapter 3. In other words, Adam was not just the first farmer. He was the first worship leader without the skinny jeans. Actually, without any genes. <laughs> but, but Adam and Eve were priestly. Exact same words. Work and to keep it. Third, temples always carried the image of the deity or the idol of the deity. If you go into any pagan temple, there you have the statue, the idol, the image of the deity. And this is what... God, three in one, say, let us create God, in uh, man, in our own image, male and female, he created them. In other words, the clearest image of the triune God was man and woman. And that makes sense to why in the building of the tabernacle, God said to Moses, there will be no graven image of me. Why? Because my image is in humanity. 
In Solomon's temple, when the pagans smashed it down AD 70, they accused the Jews of being atheists because there was no image of their God, to which the Jews said, we are God's image. Isn't that breathtaking? When you understand that we are God's image, you can't treat people poorly. Every single one of you carry the Imago day. Sin has corrupted and cracked it, but it is still there. And the most dark human being is still an image bearer. And then fourthly, the instructions of the Jewish temple, both Tabernacle and Solomon's temple, had very strong Eden imagery. So God called Moses and then Solomon to say, have carvings of flowers, palm trees, pomegranates, gold, a menorah-shaped lamp representing the tree of life. Even cherubim, when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden after, after the sin, the temptation of, of, of the serpent, God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword, keeping them out of the Garden of Eden. And sewn into the curtains between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple were these cherubim with the flaming sword. And so God very clearly wanted to remind the people that the very first temple was Eden. And so there were glimpses of Eden in the temple design. What is God saying? God is saying that creation is beautiful, but the essence of the Garden of Eden is not going to the most beautiful place and being absolutely fulfilled. The essence of the Garden of Eden is this is the place where God dwells with His people. Yes. I want to just stop there for a moment because I love traveling. We, we go to Cyprus tomorrow, and I'm so looking forward to discovering a new place. And we've been very blessed to be able to travel a lot. But very often our kind of globetrotter dream. John Steinbeck calls it the urge to be someplace else. That incurable virus of restlessness. Where's my next trip? Where's my next spot? It's because we see Eden from a very humanist point of view. We think Eden is the most beautiful place in the world where we are going to find ourselves and find peace and find fulfillment. But actually, if we see God in the center of Eden, I mean, the historians say, well, where is Eden? We only know two of those four rivers. Tigris and Euphrates. Some clever people say, oh, it was all covered over by the flood. Other people say, no, it's somewhere in Iraq, close to Turkey. If you do the studies, there's these beautiful sort of oasis places there. But I'm sure it's beautiful, but that's not everyone's cup of tea, is it? That's not everyone's naughty vicar. I mean, you might much prefer Swiss Alps. You might much prefer Hawaii, whatever. The essence of this Eden is not the most beautiful place on the earth. It's the place where God dwells with His people. And we need to understand in our globetrotter dream, how many of us go there, and it was great, but we actually come back a little bit exhausted. Why? Because we didn't dwell with God there. And the Psalms tell us that all of creation is telling us of the glory of God. The most beautiful place your most beautiful desired destination is just a signpost to the glory of God. So God is saying, enjoy my creation, but don't worship my creation. Worship me. I'm a paddleboarder. Uh, Southern California has got some great surfing beaches. And the beach that I normally go to, Dahini, a couple of weeks ago, 
a paddleboarder um, happened on a blue whale, which doesn't often happen there at Dana Point. Largest created animal. And he had his GoPro, and it went viral because he paddled with this blue whale for a full hour. And it was majestic. It was magnificent, this mammal. And this guy, all he would say is just, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just found myself after a while just going like, if blue whales could talk, what would that blue whale say to this dude? I think the blue whale would say something like, you think I'm majestic? You should check out my creator. And in fact, that creator has created me as a signpost that you might know him. This created being, me, this whale, I'm just telling you of the glory of God. Glory of the God who wants to dwell with you. And in fact, I think the blue whale would have said something like, and you know what? God doesn't just want to be an expletive word in your mouth. He wants God to be a word of adoration. He wants to dwell with you. You live in the most amazing place. Enjoy it. Not everyone gets to live here, but don't worship it. God wants to dwell with you as you enjoy his creation. You can't dwell in creation. So that's the first big idea of this passage, that God is showing us that Eden is the first temple that he wants to dwell with his people. Second big idea, how are you doing? You doing all right? Yeah, I, I come from America, and so every now and again you get like just a little, even like a little pre Presbyterian amen at a good point. You know, we've got some Pentecostals, but when I get a Presbyterian saying amen, I'm like, ah, I've, I've hit it out the park. So every now and again, just, <laughs> just like a little British Cheltenham amen every now and again. Amen. I'm not twisting your arm, but I'm just saying if, if anything connects, we've got this one lady who, I mean, I know I've, 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 I've hit it out the park because she goes, you better talk about it, pastor. I was like, okay, I will. I'm trying. Anyway, you don't have to do that, but second big idea, and this is actually a bit of a downer, so you, if you amen it, there's a problem, but we were exiled from the garden temple because of our rebellion. We were exiled. And that's why I read Genesis 3, 1 to 4, that the serpent, Revelations 19, says the serpent is Satan. He tempts Adam and Eve to believe that God's limits, you may eat of any tree, but of that tree you may not eat. You will surely die. And Satan tempts Adam and Eve to believe that God is being unreasonable, that he's taking freedom away from them, that he's being a killjoy and that there will be no consequences for disobedience. And so Eve takes and eats. In fact, the serpent says, not only will there be no consequences for disobedience, but you will be enlightened. Your eyes will be opened. Eve takes and eats. Adam takes and eats. And their eyes are opened. But not to new enlightenment. Their eyes are opened to shame. And their sin separates from them from God. Their shame separates them from one another. They try and cover with fig leaves. There is a consequence. And if we look through a whole Bible theology, this is a pattern that's repeated in every temple. That the priests, Adam and Eve is the first priests, they enjoy the dwelling of God, but they attempted to rule the temple on their own terms, not on God's terms. 
And each time there are dire consequences where God's presence withdraws. They are banished. They are exiled from the temple. And we see that in the tabernacle, the worshiping of the golden calf. We see that in Solomon's temple through heresy, through greed, through domineering the people of God. Each time the priests want to rule on their own terms. There's rebellion. What is it about us? That we want that one tree that is off limits. Even today, Satan tempts us again and again that God's limits are unreasonable. He's taking our freedom, our self-expression away from us. And if we really do eat of that tree, the forbidden fruit, our eyes will be opened. And yet the consequences are not enlightenment. They are sin and shame, separation from God, separation from one another. And we see this played out throughout history. Your culture is screaming at you that freedom, true freedom, is an absence of limits. And that is a lie. True freedom is living within your God-given limits. A fish that accepts its God-given limits of being in the water is free. If that fish defies its limits saying, this is so limiting, I'm getting out of the water... What are the consequences? They're not freedom, they're death. And brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that the serpent is still slithering in the grass. He's still trying to tempt you to say, God is unreasonable, he doesn't understand you, he's a killjoy, that forbidden fruit will open your eyes, it will give you life, and your eyes will be opened, but not to life, to shame. So we find this tragic history repeating itself. And you find yourself... Well, well, God, who's going to solve the exile? Who's going to solve the rebellion? How is God going to dwell with his people again? Because we always rebel. We always resist. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus comes as a new priest. Jesus comes as a second Adam. Jesus comes fully God, yet fully man, taking on flesh and dwelling with God's people. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus was the Word spoken that spoke creation into being. But then verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is a beautiful word. It's the word tabernacle. God is wanting us to see, I've always wanted you to be a temple. I've always wanted to tabernacle with you. From the garden, to the tent, to Solomon's temple, and now in my son who took took on flesh and tabernacled. And we know that Jesus didn't come and tabernacle with the religious. In fact, he had fights with the religious. He tabernacled with those who were rebellious. Those who were misfits. Those on the margin. Do you feel like a misfit and and on the margin? You feel rebellious this morning? That's the people that Jesus tabernacled with. He made a beeline for them. Why? Because they know they needed healing. You know you need healing this morning? Jesus wants to tabernacle with you. The startling thing we find, Romans 5 says that Jesus is like the second Adam, or he is the second Adam, that Satan tried to tempt Jesus too. And he tried to tempt him about a tree, about that tree, Jesus. The first Adam was tempted to eat of the tree. 
Jesus was tempted by Satan about hanging on the tree. You don't have to hang on the tree, Jesus. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're going to save us, but not by a cross. And Jesus says to his friend, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because there was a snake in the grass at that time trying to tempt him about that tree. And Jesus said, no, I will not see my father as a killjoy. I will not see the cross as taking away my freedom. Jesus, for the joy set before him, set his face like flint to the cross, endured the shame of the cross, and sat down at the right of the hand. What was the joy set before Jesus after the cross? It was that God's dwelling place would be with his people. That his people would be a temple. And we know Jesus came into the, into the physical temple. First, he prophesied this thing's going to come down. And it did in AD 70. But secondly, he flipped some tables. Why? Because the priests again were rebelling, wanting to rule on their own terms. And when Jesus talked about setting up a new temple, he didn't talk about bricks and mortar. He talked about a people. Yes. Talked about a people. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was talking about his people. See, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus dies as a substitute. He takes our sin upon him and establishes the rule of God with his people. John Stott wrote this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God claims penalties that belong to man alone. That is the gospel. Derek Kidner about Jesus' work as the second Adam says, the first Adam took and eat of the fruit. He took and ate. And those words take and eat, became verbs of death. The second Adam says, said to his disciples, take and eat. And those verbs became verbs of salvation. In Christ, the verbs of death become verbs of salvation. Take and eat. That's just as we begin to, to land. Let's think about what it is to be the church as the dwelling place of God. The writers of the New Testament, the apostles, kept on referring to people as the dwelling place of God. That's why you not being in your venue doesn't, should not lower your expectation that God will be here. So I'm like, oh, we're not in our normal cool theater. Maybe God's not going to be here. Why? Because God dwells amongst His people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, says Paul. You yourselves. You are being built together into a temple in whom God dwells by His Spirit, Ephesians 2 verse 20. Each one of you are a temple. You are God's sacred place. Isn't that staggering to think about that? And then he goes on, he says, you are living stones being built up into a temple. In other words, as you go home, as you go to your workplace, as you go to your school, you say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God. I am God's sacred space as I scatter. 
And then as you gather, you say, now with these living stones being built together into a place where God dwells. So I, I could experience God in my office or my work on Monday, but there's even a greater experience of God as we gather together with other little temples. Yes. Yes. Isn't it amazing that as Jesus commissioned his disciples, they didn't say, but what about Jerusalem? Because that's where you live in the temple. No, they understood in every nation, every place, every town, every city, these little temples are being spread across, carrying the image of God. So what does this mean practically to us? Practically, I, I believe it, it first means that whatever we have experienced of God's presence, there is more. Yes. Some of you have amazing testimonies of salvation and and healing, and God's provision, and prophetic words, and that's incredible, but God's presence should cause us to go, thank you God, but I'm not resting on my 1995 story. Yes. There is more. If I am truly your temple, if you are dwelling here, as Howard said, the, the resurrected Christ dwells here by His Spirit, there's surely a current temple story. And that's what we see in the life of Moses. I mean, Moses experienced the Passover, the power of the Red Sea, manna and quail. No, that was Elijah. Water from the rock. All these incredible, the tablets of stone. And yet Moses in Exodus 33 says, God, do not send us up out of here without your presence. For what else will distinguish us from all the peoples on the face of the earth except your presence? It was, it was Moses' distinguishing aim. He was like, Lord, thank you for the Passover. Thank you for the Red Sea. Thank you for the tablets of stone. Thank you for your provision. But God, we need to be your temple. We need the cloud and the fire today. I remember growing up, my, my first job as a pastor 26 years ago, and I'd go to these ministers' fraternals. Ministers' fraternals are cool. It's like warm Coke and cold quiche, you know what I'm saying? And a lot of side hugs, you know? But, but, but these guys would pray, and it was awesome, but the charismatics would always pray something like, Oh, Lord, send your spirit, send your presence, send revival. We need it now. And the Baptists and the Methodists, and I grew up Methodist, would go, Oh, Lord, thank you that we have your presence. <laughs> Thank you that we have already your spirit. And I would just go, come on, guys. It's both and. Yes. It's not either or. Yes, we have God's presence. We are saved. We are secure. God is in covenant with us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And that's a beautiful anchoring truth. Yes. But there's more. Yes. So what is it to be anchored in the truth of the gospel and yet have Moses' heart for more? I think that's the first, the first application of this. I'm so glad you gathering on Wednesday. Cry out for more of God's presence. That's not saying He's not here. We know He indwells us. But actually, He wants us by His Spirit to have a now understanding of His manifest presence. There are times when God feels far away. And then we need to lean on His Word, lean on His, His covenant. But actually, He doesn't want you to live there forever. He wants to interject and interrupt and remind you that He is alive and yes. on the throne. Yes. We had a guy who visited us about a month ago, and he came, we, we planted a church in Thailand six years ago, and um, a couple came back to visit us from Thailand, and the wife's brother, who lives in San Francisco, which is about 400 miles away, 
He wanted to come to Disney, so they were going to Disney, so he just joined them for church the next day. He's an agnostic, and, uh, but he said, hey, I'll, I'll join you in church. I preached on that day, and I, I noticed him weeping as I was preaching, and um, I, did, I hadn't met him. I had a coffee with him. I noticed he didn't go to break bread. We talked for a while, and he had questions. He went home, and over lunch with his sister, he said, I don't know, I can't stop crying. And she said, well, what was it? He said, I'm not sure. Uh, she said, was it the, the music? He was like, yeah, the music was good, but it wasn't the music. Was it, was it the preacher? Well, he was okay, a bit of a funny accent, but, but, but I don't think it was him. And so the more she, she spoke, he spoke, the more she said, oh, oh, I think you're talking about the presence of God. You felt the presence of God. He was like, well, yeah, I think so. Like, tell me more about that. Have this conversation. He still doesn't know exactly what he believes, but he says to her, I know you're going back to Thailand, but do you think it would be okay if I flew back down next weekend for the next? And there he was the next Sunday, flew back down, <laughs> weeping, weeping. And then he went to one of our pastors for prayer. He said, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I, now, I don't think he's crossed the line of faith yet, but, but that's the presence of God, the presence of God's story. We've got to trust that, that the Lord, and it doesn't always look like weeping, but sometimes it looks like agnostics flying down two hours, not knowing what's going on. Mm. I think the final application I want to leave you with this is that this is not just about the gatherings of people. It's about the scatterings of the people of God. And the presence of God commissions us into difficult places to cultivate life. I had never really seen this in Scripture before, but if you look at the order of Adam's creation and the Garden of Eden, it says that the Lord God had planted a garden in Eden, but He had not, verse 8, allowed any shrub to spring up because there was no mist to water it and there was no man to work and keep it. I don't know if you'd ever seen that. And then it says, And the Lord God put the man in the garden and caused the trees and shrubs to spring up. You see the order there? I don't know about you, but I always thought of the Garden of Eden when Adam was placed there as this lush jungle. But according to the order of Genesis, it was a dust bowl. It was like a plowed field with no green. Planted with Eden potential, but a dust bowl. And the Lord waited until there was a man there, and then he watered it and caused it to spring up. I don't know about you, but that excites me. <laughs> because very often in life where we live, where we do relationships and work and, and ministry and where we plant churches and where we want to set up businesses, we're just looking for the Eden. Where's the most lush place? Where's the most moral place? Where's the most inviting place? And I'll go there. We in California have a lot of people leaving to places like Texas and Tennessee because it's moral there and more Christian there and more Republican there. And it's seeking for Eden, but it's the wrong picture of Eden. Eden was a dust bowl planted with life. Abundant life. But actually God was waiting for his man and his woman to be placed there. And I want to ask you, what is your dust bowl? Yeah, is it your marriage? 
Is it your kids? Is it that neighbor? Is it that cynical seeker? Is it that jaded Christian who's deconstructing? Is it the person next to you in the office cubicle? Because that dust bowl, God has planted with Eden life, but he's waiting for a man or woman to work the ground. And when you're willing to go there, he will water it and he will grow it. But we've got to be willing to go into dust bowls, beloved. That's the lesson of the presence of God. It's not just the Eden where the church gathers. It is that. But it's little dust bowls where the church scatters. And God says, I'm waiting for a man to be there, for a woman to be there, to work the ground, and I will water it. As Elizabeth Elliot said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in another set of circumstances. And so often we think, if I'm in another set of circumstances, then there'll be Eden. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, be faithful in the dust bowl. And through my presence, I will bring forth life. But will you cultivate? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that in you, the verbs take and eat that brought death now become verbs of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that you want to dwell with your people. Thank you that you made a way. Thank you that you tabernacled. Thank you, Jesus, that you were exiled on the cross that we might be restored to the presence of God. So I pray that you would pour out your spirit and that you would commission your people to garden dust bowls for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.